Well, good morning, family. It is such a pleasure and such a joy to be able to fellowship with you in God's word this morning. I do thank God for your pastor. Thank God for Brian, for his commitment uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ and his commitment to this body. Uh, I bring you greetings from Dr. Paul Chitwood, uh, who's the executive director treasurer of the Kentucky Baptist Convention. And his wonderful wife, Michelle, right now, they are serving. They are suffering for Jesus in Puerto Rico. Amen. <laughs> but I, I'm so thankful that they had a time to get away and to relax and to enjoy one another's uh, company. Uh, he works really hard in order to lead our convention. And so it's always a beautiful thing when he takes some time and, and is able to engage his wife in an intimate way. Uh, of course, my, my best half, my prime rib is here. <laughs> Tracy, Yvonne Woods is here. My three sons, Anthony, Timothy, Timothy and Tristan, uh, most affectionately known as AT&T. <laughs> uh, we, we typically remind people that they think they keep things connected for the Woods family. Amen. But he's right. We, we were on the road last night and they have... They have tarried with daddy. Uh, we made it back at 1 a.m. Uh, this morning. And uh, we feel, we're still feeling pretty good, amen, at least I am. Because I have an opportunity to open up God's word and to fellowship with you in his word on a subject that is most important to all of us, I pray. And that is the subject of marriage and the significance of marriage uh, for not only for the Lord's church, but as a gospel witness for a culture that is chaotic. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Ephesians, a familiar passage of Scripture, Ephesians for some, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 uh, through 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. When you have it, just say amen. If you don't have it, say wait up. And then remember this. Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? Or General Electric Power Company, whatever helps you to get there. But the, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, start our reading at verse 22. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible. Amen. Hey, that sounds like a good Dallas seminary, amen, with the NASB, praise God. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their, own, to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy 
and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. For a little while this morning, I want to talk to you from this thought. Marriage is a mystery, not a misery. Marriage is a mystery, not a misery. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. For the life that Jesus Christ lived, for the death that Jesus Christ paid on the behalf of sinners, for the physical erection, resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. We thank you that the spirit of Christ makes us alive so that we are regenerated. We can see the beauty of the gospel. We come running asking, what must I do to be saved? As we hear your still small voice beckoning us unto yourself. Father, we realize that the gospel is sufficient for salvation and the gospel is sufficient for sanctification. And we dare not try to speak on the subject of marriage without highlighting the beauty of the gospel. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that your name would be glorified and that your son would be lifted up and that the spirit of Christ would illuminate your word. Where I am feeble, God, make through the power of the spirit, your word faithful. Father, we thank you for this day and we pray you would strengthen marriages in the faith. In Jesus name. Amen. Marriage is a mystery, not a misery. As much as I enjoy reading, I very seldom take the time to read novels. In fact, I've discovered that the reason why I don't read novels that much is because it takes so long to develop the character and the plot or the storyline of a novel. You know, as soon as you start reading the novel and you get into one particular character in chapter one, the next thing you know, they're introducing a new character who serves a new role uh, to the overarching storyline of the novel. You have chapter three and you meet another character and on and on it goes to a point where you just feel like if you're anything like me who typically reads for the purpose of information and not just the experience. You want to get to the end of the novel and find out what's going to happen, right? Well, I, I decided instead of taking time to read novels, I decided to start listening to classic novels on uh, audio books. 
And so since I do a lot of driving around the state as a state missionary, I've been listening to some of the great classics that I've always wanted to read, but just didn't have time to, or shall I say, I didn't want to take the time to read. And and recently I started listening to uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Now, I never thought that I would uh, read Uncle Tom's Cabin because the first three times that I tried to read it, I always stopped at around chapter 10. But now I find myself in, in book two of Uncle Tom's Cabin because all I have to do is sit by and just listen to the reader explain the characters, explain the plot, and explain the storyline and learn how each particular particular person's roles fit to the overarching theme of the story. In fact, the process is not miserable anymore. The process is actually joyful and delightful. I could hardly wait to get on the road just to listen to this reader explain Uncle Tom's cabin. Marriages today, as you know, beloved, are in critical condition. Because we fail to appreciate the beautiful storyline that God has designed for the purpose of marriage. We discount the complementary roles that God has ordained before the foundation of the world for the betterment of your spouse in relationship to Christ and his church. We fail to allow the controlling power of the Holy Spirit to make us one throughout the difficulties of marriage, knowing that in marriage you will have highs and you will have lows. In fact, anybody who's been married over five minutes knows that that's true. You have ups and downs. You have joy and pain. You have you have valleys and you also have mountaintops experience. But that is what it means to be in an authentic relationship with another person. I recall a while back, Dr. Payne, when Tommy Nelson came to Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship for a vacation Bible school. And Dr. Nelson said that when you start thinking about marriage, you ought to think about it in this way. He says that when people are born into their world, they're born sort of like this. They're walking through the world just like this as an individual. And they're walking around just doing life, uh, just swinging from right to left all of their life. And he said, and then they finally meet the girl of their dreams or the boy of their dreams. And they've been going through life in the same way. And when they finally say I do to one another and and they make it from the altar to to the home and then to the living room, they discover that now they're together. And there's a whole lot of noise. Amen. Really, that's how it is. Because when two broken individuals are being bonded together in the fear of Christ, you ought to expect some type of noise. You you ought to expect some type of pain and and sorrow. But even in the midst of pain and sorrow, if you take your eyes off of yourself and place your gaze on Christ, you will allow his pain and his sorrow to give you a better tomorrow. You see, that's what I think uh, the Apostle Paul is trying to do for us as we study this particular passage in Ephesians. 
Many of you know that as Paul writes the book of Ephesians, he is highlighting the beauty of the sovereign God of the universe desire to call a people so that they can be in the bosom of his beloved in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He does this calling by election, choosing them before the beautiful foundation of the world so that as they come to Christ, they know that they are secure in Christ, not by their own worth or by their own works, but by the worth and the works of another. And they come running, saying, I'm secure in Christ because I have been saved by grace through faith. And it is a gift of God, not by my works, but by his works. And they know now that they have become a beautiful poem. They they are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus in order to perform good works in the Lord's church as well as in the house, as well as in the community because Christ transforms lives. And so in the book of Ephesians, as, as Howard Hendricks used to say, the first chapters, the first three chapters are dedicated to doctrine. And then the latter three chapters are dedicated to devotion or duty. The first three chapters are are explaining to us how our security is in Christ. And then the latter three chapters explain to us how those who are secure in Christ begin to live out this life in a number of different areas. In Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about how husbands and wives are, are to live out their lives in the midst of the Lord's church, as well as in the community. You see, this morning, beloved, please understand that I I need you to see that marriage is literally a mystery and it is not a misery when, as John Piper tells us in Desiring God, love seeks its joy in the joy of the beloved. You see, marriage is is not a misery when you begin to see your spouse as actually the one who will bring you joy as you're seeking to fulfill their joy. And that's a conundrum, isn't it? That you, you begin to experience joy because you're trying to delight in the one who is ultimately delighting in you and it becomes vice versa. It's sort of like beat out Sassoon. I know you may not remember this commercial, but I'm bald for a reason. But beat out Sassoon used to say that if you don't look good, what? I knew I wasn't the only person who watched TV. If you don't look good, baby, then we don't look good. If you don't look good, honey, then we don't look good. We are living our lives as covenant enforcers, believing that Jesus Christ has secured our salvation by his death, burial, and resurrection to such an extent where now our wives become beautiful, our lives become beautiful examples of the gospel in the midst of marriage. You see, my friend Jim Hamilton reminded me of this as I recently read one of his articles on the mystery of marriage. Jim says, and I quote as he quotes John Piper, the reason there's so much misery in marriage is not that husbands and wives seek their own pleasure, but they do not seek it in the pleasure of their spouses. In other words, when we seek joy in the joy of our spouse, our pursuit of joy gives them joy. Do you see that marriage is all about joy? 
And this is why the psalmist says to us, I think, in Psalm 1611, that Yahweh, God, has shown us the path of life, that in his presence is the fullness of joy, and at his right hand flows what? Pleasures or mercies forevermore. When you read Psalm 1611 in light of the new covenant, then you realize that the person who seats at the right hand of the Father is none other than Jesus Christ. So in the presence of Christ with husband and wife together, pursuing the one flesh identity, they experience the fullness of joy. But what does this joy look like? Well, I think Ephesians 5, 22 and through 33 is tailored to teach us how to pursue one's spouse, our spouse's joy. Some give uh, really wooden interpretations of this passage and applications of this passage. They seem more concerned about trying to prove hierarchical submission, and I believe in hierarchical submission, but they seem more concerned about that than what it means to delight in ordering yourself under a better leader. You see, that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is showing us that the lifestyle of submission only takes place when we are continually filled by the Spirit, submitting ourselves to one another in fear of Christ in order to experience true joy in life. Let me repeat that. The lifestyle of submission Ephesians 5, 18, he says here in the text. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he opens and he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And I think that the results of a person who is filled with the Spirit, they are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. They're always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And then they're seeking to be subject or submissive to one another in the fear of Christ or in reverence for Christ. So the lifestyle of submission only takes when we are continually filled by the Spirit so that we might submit ourselves to one another in fear of Christ in order to experience joy in life. If you do not experience the the Spirit's filling on a daily basis, beloved, you will not experience joy in your marriage. Your marriage will be miserable. You'll be just like me at chapter 10, reading uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And at chapter 10, because it's taken so long, you don't understand the roles. You don't understand the storyline. You just say, you know what? I'm not enjoying this. I might as well close the book and start over with something else. Right? But what Paul is doing is, Paul is trying to help us to see that to understand the beauty of marriage, we must set our minds on what God has designed for the storyline. And the ultimate purpose for this storyline is God's glory. And you're good. You see, in verse 21, and when you're filled with the Spirit, you joyfully submit to one another in reverence for Christ. In verses 22 through 24, we discover that wives willfully submit to their God-fearing husbands. Notice that. 
that wives willfully submit to their God-fearing husbands in verses 22 through 24. In verses 25 through 30, husbands lovingly lead their wives in a Christ-like manner. Husbands lovingly lead their wives in a Christ-like manner. And then he closes verses 32 through 33 saying, marriage illustrates Christ's love for his church to a watching world. That's it. But, but what should we take home as we listen to this text? Well, what you should take home, beloved, is this, that spirit-filled people experience a fulfilled marriage, period. Did y'all hear that? Spirit-filled people experience a fulfilled marriage. But the problem is when we don't understand how the spirit is consistently filling us, then we never experience this fulfilled marriage. So the question is, what do we mean when we say be filled with the spirit? Well, I'm glad you asked. Y'all ask some really good questions around here. What it means to be filled with the spirit is it is not simply a task filling like we see in the Old Testament. When the spirit comes upon someone and gives them the ability through the anointing to fulfill a task, be it a prophetic utterance or to run a long distance, Elijah, 1 Kings 19, the spirit comes upon someone so that they can fulfill a task. That's task filling. But we also know that the indwelling of the spirit means that because we're saved and regenerated by the spirit, the spirit now through the new covenant lives in the believer, right? So we are secured by the spirit because he indwells us. And because the spirit is one with the father and one with the son, we will always be secure in Christ. Lest the father can tell a lie. The last time I checked, the Bible says that God cannot what? He cannot lie. In fact, if you tell God to spell lie, he'll he'll become dyslexic. He, He can't do it. And so when we think about the spirit now, we, we say, yeah, I understand the task feeling. I understand character feeling. But what does it mean to be filled by the spirit? What it means is that on a daily basis, we're allowing the spirit Christ to blow up our joy in our hearts. See, I got little sons like you guys. And back in the day, they used to love blowing up balloons. You ever blew up balloons? Now you're probably like me. You like to blow them up, put water in them, and then throw them at people. <laughs> no, I don't do that anymore. Notice I said anymore. But, but when you blow up the balloon, you have to breathe into it. And then it expands and expands and expands, right? And that, in order for it to expand, you have to put more air into the balloon. And then it begins to fill. It begins to expand. But if you allow that balloon to sit and to stay stagnant, guess what happens to the balloon? You tell me. It shrinks, doesn't it? To be filled by the Spirit means this is something we're doing on a daily basis. In order for for us not to shrink in character as husbands and wives, we allow the Spirit to blow our hearts up and our affections up in His Word. See, that's why he, I think he's saying that the person who's, who's filled, they begin speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and mel- making melody in their heart to the Lord. They realize that they have received grace and they begin singing about that grace with their spouse in order to become a model of grace with their spouse. 
And so spirit-filled people experience a fulfilled marriage, but it is a daily desire to be filled by the spirit. And so Paul finally gets to verse 22 and he says here, for verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. You know, verses 22 through 24, I want to argue that Paul is saying live a counter-cultural life. We know he's saying live a counter-cultural life because he uses the term in an NAS, be subject or submit. We don't like the S word, do we? In fact, some marriage vows want to take the S word out. Well, we we don't want to say submit. Is Is there a better synonym for that? Like, no, I like submit. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husband as unto the Lord. The text, Paul is saying the reason why wives are willfully submitting themselves unto their husbands as unto the Lord is because Christ becomes the lens through which they understand submission. You say, I can't submit to my husband because you don't know that man. It's like, if you knew my husband, you would redact that verse. There's an emendation in the text, you'd say. No, no, no. I don't have to know your husband. All I have to know is Christ. And I, and I know that if you're in covenant with Christ, the same Christ who gives you the ability to say yes to righteousness and no to unrighteousness can give you to the ability to submit like a daughter of Sarah, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Who submitted unto Abraham, calling him Lord. And y'all know Abraham, read Genesis. He didn't always make the best decisions, did he? You remember Abraham when he was with Sarai and they were entering into a number of places, dealing with Abimelech on one occasion, dealing with, with the Pharaoh on another occasion. Every time Abraham entered into a city, he became afraid. He took his eyes off of Yahweh and he said to his beautiful wife, Sarah or Sarai, he said to her, hey, tell them because they know you fine, girl. Can I redact that little Ebonics? He said, tell them that you're my half-sister so they won't kill me, right? And she submits to Abraham. But by God's grace, God secures Sarah. Even though Abraham was dropping the ball, God secures Sarah because she was submitting unto Abraham as unto Yahweh. And God took care of Sarah because he was concerned mainly about his covenant that he had made with this fickle leader. Do I need to say that again? See, beloved, when he says husbands, when he says wives to be subject to your own husbands as unto the Lord, what Paul is saying is that when your gaze is on Christ, you will begin to see submission through his lens. I I like how Jim Hamilton puts it in in a work entitled uh, The Mystery of Marriage. Hamilton states, if the wife's duty to submit is all-encompassing, then the husband's duty to love is all-consuming. A wife's submission to her husband demands the sacrifice of her freedom. A husband's love for his wife demands his very life. You see, only a love for the glorious gospel can produce a posture of biblical submission. 
Because Paul says, wives, submit yourself or be subject to your own husbands. Wives are to willfully submit to their husbands because husbands begin to set the atmosphere for submission in their homes. Oh, I hope y'all got that. Why is a wife willing to submit? Because now the husband is willing to set an appropriate atmosphere for submission. This is what Paul is saying. When he says wives submit, it is literally saying that she willfully gives herself. It is not like a child should submit to a parent because when a child submits to a parent, a parent says jump, the child should respond how high, really. But when a wife submits, a wife is willfully giving herself in submission because the husband is setting an atmosphere for submission in the house. He's like a designer. Putting, putting the right chair in the right place, putting the right picture in the right place because he wants her submission to be as easy as possible. But, but what if your husband doesn't have that as a mindset? What if that is not the characteristic of your husband? Then Paul says, as unto the Lord. In other words, if your husband is not setting the right atmosphere, always remember that your Lord has set the right atmosphere for you. Because he has died in your place. Howard Honer suggests that the word submits connotes the idea of an act of a free agent, a free agent. Some of y'all watch sports, right? When, when you think about the free agent, the free agent is the person who was under contract. Now he's free. He can choose whatever team he wants to go to. And typically he chooses the t- team based upon what? Money, 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 money. Don't think about Donald Trump right now. We've been thinking about him enough lately. But, but, but he sets this atmosphere and the free agent says, based upon the money, he says, show me the money. But no, that's not why the wife is willing to submit. No, she's not saying, show me the money. No, she's saying, I'm a free agent willfully giving myself to the husband because I'm saying, show me the master. And the master Jesus is showing himself on a daily basis as she leans into Christ so that she can submit her life to her husband. There's no other way. But how do we practically live this thing out, these verses here? Why be subject to your husband as unto your own Lord? For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is also the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their own husbands in everything. How do we practically live this out? Well, I think communication is the key. When my wife and I first got married, she had this little slogan. Communication is the key. 19 years later, she keeps saying communication is the key. You see, we ask our spouse, what makes you feel the most loved today? What can I do to make you feel the most loved? How can I model the gospel before you today? And if they don't have the words, then you begin to ask God, what must I do in order to help my spouse see Jesus Christ? 
And it's vice versa. It's both the wife and it's also the husband because you're setting an atmosphere of submission, husband. So she might rather rightly respond. So we live a counter-cultural life, verses 22 through 25. Christ is the head of the church. The husband is the head of the wife. But what does it look like? It looks like a lifestyle of submitting, I think, husband to Christ so that she might be able to submit willfully to you. Verses 25 through 30. After Paul explains submit in verse 22. And then he tells us in verse 23, here's why you submit or gives us the reason for submission. Juxtaposing Christ as the head of the church and then the husband being the head of the wife. He says, make sure you submit in verse 24 because you're subject to Christ. But in verses 25 through 30, I think what Paul now does is he says that love that we should love in a countercultural way. Verses 22 through to 24, he said, live a countercultural lifestyle, but now he says, love in a countercultural way. Why, husband? Because Christ becomes your model for submission. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up for her. The purpose and result. So that he might sanctify her. Set her apart. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. That he might present himself a the church in all her glory. Having no spot or wrinkle. Or any such thing. But that she would be holy and blameless. See, Christ becomes your model for submission by showing us that we cannot misunderstand the point of this illustration. These verses, if you make sense of these verses, these verses are about death. A death that produces life. And if you don't die daily to self, you will kill your marriage. Everything in this passage is about death. Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. What did Christ do? He gave himself up for her. In what way did he give himself up for her? The Christ was willing to take the absolute wrath of God on your behalf so you can have life and be at life at last. He took the full wrath of God so that you and I might be saved. Crushed by the father, Isaiah 53, 10, so that we could have life. And now Paul is saying, when you think about the crushing of Christ, you must die because in order to love your wife like Christ loved the church, you wake up in the morning and you say, God, help me to die today. So I can faithfully serve your bride, who is my bride. God, help me to die to my self-centeredness today because I know that apart from your grace, I am happily narcissistic. But because of your grace, I can become theistic and see Jesus Christ as the only person who deserves my full allegiance so that I can serve your daughter well. 
But if you are not dying daily, beloved, let me let you in on a secret. Tell everybody I told you. Marriage will be miserable. It will be miserable. But when you seek to die daily, you read this passage and you say, just as Christ took the wrath of God on my behalf so that I will not experience wrath, let me not be a wrathful agent in my home, but let me be one who's experienced the mercy of Christ become a conduit of mercy. That's what we oftentimes forget, husband. Those who have experienced mercy should become conduits of mercy. And and Paul begins to show what it looks like for a husband to live a foolish life. He says in verse 28, so husbands also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him, him, his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Paul is basically saying that fools hurt themselves, right? How would you feel if you saw a guy walking around? And that guy was doing this. You're watching him. He's walking. He's doing like this. (laughs) Kicking himself in the butt. (laughs) What would y'all say? Y'all be like, oh, there's some problems here, right? And you, you would have problems because now as you watch this individual kicking himself or smacking himself, what would you say to an individual who's looking in the mirror and all he's saying is negative things to himself? You're, you're worthless. You never do anything right. And you walk by and you see him looking in the mirror. You're like, this, this guy needs some help, right? He said, this guy is crazy, right? Well, well, that's what Paul is basically saying. If your wife, husband, is your own flesh, then Paul is saying to us, healthy living in a marriage means we monitor our tongues and our touch, right? Healthy living in a marriage means you learn to monitor your tongue as well as your touch. You don't touch with force. You only touch in order to bring healing and nurturing and cherishing. You you don't use your tongue with force. You use your tongue in order to produce life and hope and joy in Jesus Christ. If a person, husband, if you are a husband and you use your tongue in order to bring shame, then shame on you, husband. If you are a husband and you use your touch in order to bring fear, then shame on you, husband, because guilt and shame and fear are not in the cross. Christ has taken away the guilt, the shame, and the fear that we have is a reverence for what Christ has done. And so as men of God who love our wives as Christ loved the church, we don't lead by fear. We walk by faith. And we create this atmosphere that's conducive for submission for our wives because we want to love in a countercultural way. We're not just loving just to receive. We're loving because we have received the greatest gift of love, which is the son, Jesus Christ. And we want to model that for our wives. Monitor your tongue and your touch. Don't live the life of a fool. Lastly, lest I hold you too long, beloved, 
verses 31 through 33. Paul says, live out the glorious gospel. First, I think Paul is telling us live a countercultural lifestyle to the wives. Submission is a beautiful thing, verses 22 through 24. Then secondly, I, I think Paul is saying love in a countercultural way, husband, because Christ is your model for submission. And then lastly, verses 31 through 33, he says, live out the glorious gospel. Because broken and beloved people can become one flesh through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, in verse 31, Paul says, verse 30, he says, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall be joined to his wife. And shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church Nevertheless, let each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, not as a fool, but as a man of faith. And a wife must see to it that she respects her husband, not as a fool, but as a woman of faith, so that there's love and respect. And we are seeking to glorify Christ. The glorious gospel is motivating this, not shame, not guilt and not fear. Paul says the mystery is great. Well, what is this mystery? The mystery that the gospel transforms sinners whose marriages now become a model for a watching world in the midst of chaos. Everybody say chaos. Now, the question is, what is chaos as we make our way to a close? Beloved, I need you to see this chaos. When you read the Genesis narrative in Genesis chapter three, it literally says that chaos has entered into the world, right? We know that chaos means this. In my thinking, when I see the male and the female who are having pains with one another, who are seeking to fight one another, one is seeking to rule over him, but he's going to rule over you because sin is now in the world. Chaos simply means C-H-A-O-S. Creation has an ongoing struggle. That is chaos. And the chaos we see all around us is because the Genesis narrative is true. Sin has entered the world. But I'm so glad that I read verse 15. Did you? And it tells us in verse 15 that literally, yes, you serpent will bruise his heel. But he, namely the seed, the seed Jesus Christ will crush your head. So that now the chaos that we see in the world, Christian, because of the covenant loyalty of Jesus Christ in the midst of our marriages does not have to dominate our family lives. Why? Because now chaos has been redeemed. How has chaos been redeemed? Well, Christ heals all our sin. Creation has an ongoing struggle, but now C-H-A-O-S, Christ heals all our sin. And now sinners who have been saved by grace can become a beautiful testimony, a poem, his workmanship of what it means to love the Christ. Broken people bonded together as gospel witness 
in the midst of marriage. You see, we cleave to Christ and to one another for God's glory and our good. Because the mystery that's great is that Christ, Paul says, I'm speaking with reference to Christ and his church. Perhaps here's what you should do, beloved. As you think about how spirit-filled people experience a fulfilled marriage, perhaps what you should do today is say, uh, members begin not only memorizing and meditating and speaking the word over your spouse, washing your wife in the word, husband, and allowing yourself to be washed by your husband in the word, wife, but perhaps memorizing poetry together will help as well. There's a poem that's near to my heart. And I often quote this poem because it reminds me of my sin and it reminds me of my great Savior. And it's by Horatius Bonner. And it says, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I was one. And in that den of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throngs I see, mocking the sufferers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Where were you when they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? You were there among the scoffers. But if you look to the left, you see your wife. And if you look to the right, you see your husband. But if you look forward, you see the Christ looking at both of you saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now allow his forgiveness to cause you to forgive one another and to walk by faith and not by sight. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.